Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this lecture will be on the acute abdomen, and uh, I'm not going to try to cover the entire acute abdomen. Uh, the title says GI applications, and in fact, I'm not going to try to cover all GI applications. If we thought about the acute abdomen with GI applications, we'd be covering appendicitis and diverticulitis and mesenteric paniculitis and uh, all sorts of things. In this talk, I'm basically going to focus on three different areas, and I just needed a title for this uh, talk, so that's the reason I picked this title. No, there's better reasons, but we'll get to that in a moment. So what's an acute abdomen? And well, acute abdomen is something we all uh, evaluate for many times a day, and the definition is a clinical syndrome characterized by severe abdominal pain, typically sudden and onset, requiring emergency medical or surgical treatment. So it's a very, very simple process in that it puts radiology at the forefront, particularly CT, in that we need to make a diagnosis, we need to make a decision. Do you admit the patient or do you discharge the patient? Do you put them on a medical floor or do you put them on a surgical floor? Is it appendicitis or is it diverticulitis? Is it uh, ischemic bowel? Is it something related to the liver or spleen or is it acute pancreatitis or acute cholecystitis? And that's just the GI challenges. Maybe it's adrenal hemorrhage. Maybe it's renal pathology. That's some of the kidney challenges like polynephritis. Maybe it's GYN. Maybe it's musculoskeletal, abscess, hematoma. Those are all possibilities. Maybe it's vascular, primary vascular, aortic aneurysm, aortic dissection, aortic rupture. So there are so many things that really fit in the acute abdomen. And um, this talk will cover a couple of them, as I mentioned, and it may take two or three of these lectures to get through this. And we'll come back at a later date, look at some of the GU applications and vascular and GYN. So we're going to cover everything over time. Uh, what I want to do in this talk also is to focus on some of the basic principles of using CT in the acute abdomen and some important references. And I may be giving you too many references, but I think the reason I intentionally did that is I want you to really see what the literature says. So here's a very important article. CT performed the ER increases physician's level of certainty, reduces admission rates by 23.8%, and leads to more timely surgical intervention. And I think that's everybody's experience. And in fact, it's so much our experience that CT truly is the physical examination. Uh, patients come in with severe abdominal pain because of all the possibilities. The patient often will get a CT scan, and based on the CT, uh, you'll know what referring doctor call, or if you're calling a surgeon, the surgeon will know exactly what they need to do at that point. And you can see from the same article, another quote, reducing hospital admissions by 24%. That's critical in decreasing costs. More timely surgery. Do you need surgery? If you need appendicitis, you need to do it now. The longer you wait, the more common there are complications. Also ruling out significant disease. The fact is a negative CT is a negative patient, a patient who can be discharged. That's important. And again, alternative diagnosis is something we always speak about in CT. Somebody comes in, rule out appendicitis, they have polynephritis. They come in, rule out polynephritis, they have PID. They come in back pain, rule out dissection, they have acute cholecystitis. So again, early detection, accurate detection, and the right diagnosis are something that CT has been able to do. And this is a very good article really making that point with numbers. Now, when we think about the acute abdomen in terms of really trying to triage patients, there's so many things beyond the CT scan that really help us out. Patient age and sex. 
is a 20-year-old is not going to be diverticulitis. It's more likely appendicitis. And if it's a 70-year-old female, it's not going to be PID. Past medical history, someone on Coumadin is more likely to have a bleed. Someone with prior pancreatitis is more likely to have recurrent pancreatitis. Clinical presentation, despite the advances in CT, patients do present with clinical symptoms. What are those clinical symptoms telling you? And if you examine the patient, what are the physical findings telling you? Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not helpful, sometimes they're confusing, but again, they provide important information. And lab tests, the same thing. What's the amylase? What's the lipase? What's the patient's lactic acid? All of these things, of course, are critical. And when I look at a CT, I look at the CT as an entity, but I look at it also as part of a picture, with the picture being the patient and any of the information I typically can be given. Now, in saying that, here are just, again, a list of those clinical parameters. Now, the last thing you see is prior radiologic examinations. And again, that does become very important because uh, if a patient had an ultrasound or a prior CT or whatever the study was, that indeed can provide important information. So if it's possible, you'd love to have the information from the prior studies or have the prior studies available. We all know that's not always possible, but we do our best getting there. Now, in terms of scanning protocols, this will vary a little bit on what you expect. Acute abdomen, particularly with thinking about a inflammatory bowel disease, ischemia, something with bowel-related, we're going with water as a contrast agent, and we're going with IV. Now, IV typically, regardless of the application, we're going at about 100 to 120 ml at about 4 ml per second injection rate. When don't you do contrast? Well, in the typical stone protocol where it's rule out stone disease. That's just a plain non-contrast CT. But in most other applications, IV contrast is critical. Whether you go with positive or neutral contrast will depend in part on the application or what you suspect. Sometimes positive contrast is much easier in diverticulitis or appendicitis. Other times it probably doesn't matter. Occasionally we'll use rectal contrast material. A number of years ago there were lots of articles about rectal contrast material for looking at appendicitis, but that's just not necessary. The articles have shown oral only, oral and IV, oral IV and rectal, rectal only, IV and rectal, you name the combination. Each of them have the success rate in the high 90%. So again, uh, rectal contrast is not routinely necessary. Now, one of the things that's come up a lot in articles is something we've always held dear to our heart, is how to look at the images. And I can ask you the question, what's the optimal technique for looking at patients with the acute abdomen? How do you look at their CTs? Is it axial, coronal, is it sagittal, is it 3D? What should you be doing? And there are a few articles recently. Here's an article. And axial and coronal reformations have equal sensitivity for diagnosis of abdominal pathology. Okay, but then of course, if you were able to look at the coronals instead of the axials, um, then you'd have less images to look at. Also, this article did make another important point. Although the axial coronals, in their experience, gave the same information, the coronals were most helpful to the least experienced people. And so whether it's residents or junior faculty, the reconstructive views were especially helpful for those people. Another thing, um, this was looking at stone disease, and here is a good example that it mentioned that uh, you may not increase the detection of stones, but you may reduce evaluation time as long as the studies are done with thin sections. So again, we're talking about different things. Again, speed and accuracy. In this article, 
Most cases of small bowel disease, various 3D technologies can help make an easy, rapid, and accurate diagnosis while avoiding unnecessary examinations. And so there have been several articles basically looking at that, that in terms of using isotropic data sets, reformations are of high enough quality to be used as the primary mode. And here's another quote from that same article. In conclusion, we've shown that axial coronals of isotropic data set are of high image quality in our experience. Such acquisitions are possible with every patient or almost every patient. So again, it's something that can be looked at. And you know the comment being that these reformats may be used as for routine image interpretation, changing our tradition of axial images only. So again, the point I'm trying to make is one of the things you might consider with these large data sets is going beyond axial imaging. These articles speak about coronal, 3D imaging is also critical, but as again we look at coronal and 3D and sagittal and axial in a compendium, this should work out very nicely for you. So let's look at some pathology. Now, I like to usually talk about a four quadrant approach, upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right, and focus on what typically presents in those locations. But uh, that will be a topic for another day. And I'm just going to speak about several things in this lecture, as I mentioned. And the first one will be the spleen. And so when I want to talk about a splenic pathology, the spleen is a difficult area to evaluate. But let's talk a little bit about some of the acute things in the spleen. Talk about aneurysms. We can talk about pseudoaneurysms. Remember, aneurysms typically are incidental findings on CT. Pseudoaneurysms commonly will present with symptoms. When you look at visceral artery aneurysms, which we are seeing more frequently these days, the most common visceral artery aneurysm is the splenic artery. It makes up the uh, true majority of cases. Hepatic artery is second. Everything else is very uncommon. In fact, splenic artery aneurysms are the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm. It's more common in women, but uh, when they do rupture, it's more common to rupture in men. It's associated with a number of conditions from atherosclerosis. That's the one we commonly will see. Hypertension, portal hypertension, particularly with the cirrhotic patient, something we commonly do see it in. Pregnancy and liver transplantation are two other situations. Uh, splenic artery pseudoaneurysms are typically a result of local inflammation, like repeated episodes of pancreatitis or trauma, particularly perforating trauma, post-operative complications, or pelvic ulcer disease. And the one I've seen it most commonly with is with prior pancreatitis and repeated episodes of pancreatitis. Now, when someone presents with a pseudoaneurysm, it's typically abdominal pain. They may present with melana, hematemesis, and again, pseudoaneurysms are important. One third will rupture spontaneously with a mortality approaching 90%. And as I mentioned, it's something that's easier to diagnose these days, particularly because of the use of cross-sectional imaging modalities like ultrasound and CT. Endovascular treatment is usually very, very effective. So let's look at some examples. Nice example of splenic artery aneurysm. Let me just show you a few of these. Typically, under 1.5 to 2 cm, no one worries. They may be focal, as in the hilum. I see them more commonly centrally than peripherally. There it is, another one. You can see they're typically smooth and well-defined. When you look at them in 3D, you can see how they're often outpouchings of the splenic artery, nicely shown there or nicely shown here. 
you can see in this case there is no calcification. 3D mapping can be very helpful. Now these are all well defined. There's nothing going on in them. Now based on size criteria and the future risk, these will often be embolized. Now what about this case? This case is different. There's a large aneurysm, but in this case it's a pseudoaneurysm. You see the inflammation around it. You see the irregular wall. This is something that has a high incidence. What do we say? 70% of potentially rupturing. And if this ruptures, it can be fatal. And in this case, you actually see blood around the region of the pseudoaneurysm. And this patient was a weightlifter, had previously collapsed while lifting weights, and no one can find the cause. But here you nicely see a pseudoaneurysm, which is irregular and has blood around it. And I'll show it to you in a few different perspectives, but you really get the feel. The 3D is nice, but just the coronals work very well. So again, a critical thing, pseudoaneurysms, spontaneous processes. This case, um, you do not see spontaneous rupture. The aneurysms, as I mentioned, are more common near the hilum of the spleen. But I'm showing you this example to show you a case of multiple splenic artery aneurysms, but how they're in the proximal aspects of the vessel. Another example. Here's one. Look at this large bleed left up upper quadrant. You see what remains of the aneurysm, a pseudoaneurysm. This is a large uh, bleed off this relatively small pseudoaneurysm in a patient with repeated episodes of pancreatitis. Now, splenic artery occlusion, uh, just like splenic vein occlusion, is more common or most common in patients with pancreatic disease, particularly pancreatic cancer. And you can see very nicely here, the splenic vein is occluded. On earlier phase images, a splenic artery was also occluded. When you have splenic vein occlusion, you have extensive collaterals, gastric varices, esophageal varices, extensive spread of the disease process. Now, when we speak about uh, aneurysms, one of the things we also speak about are infarcts because aneurysms can cause occlusion of vessels which can lead to infarcts, as in this case. Splenic infarction is not uncommon. It can be typically described as segmental, which are focal zones, uh, which is the more common, or a global presentation where nearly the entire spleen is involved. Uh, the etiology of infarction is variable from endocarditis to atrial fill to sickle cell anemia, tumors like lymphoma, uh, trauma. Again, the appearance wedge-shaped low-density zones. Splenic infarct will commonly be missed if you don't do IV contrast scans. Again, the extent will be variable. And a couple examples. Here's a nice case of uh, multiple splenic infarcts involving most of the spleen. And another case of more of a wedge-shaped focal splenic infarct. Or another case of another splenic infarct, very nicely seen there. There always is the issue about infarcts becoming abscesses. How do you track that? That's kind of difficult. Infarcts, when they're round like this, are more difficult to ascertain because they kind of look like abscesses, and I would have considered that possibility. Here's another splenic infarct. Again, the very wedge-shaped low-density zones. If patients have splenic artery aneurysms, like this case, and they're embolized, often the embolization will result in infarction, and a beautiful example of wedge-shaped infarction. We can get infarction from invasion. We can get infarction in patients with sickle cell disease. Often the spleen in those cases is small and atrophic, but you get autoinfarction. Here's a case of SC disease with multiple areas of calcification. I mentioned direct invasion of the spleen. Here's an example of a large renal cell carcinoma. 
which uh, directly involves the spleen. That's fairly uncommon, but it can occur. Now, let me also mention a little bit about spontaneous splenic hemorrhage. Uh, I saw a case yesterday of a patient post-colonoscopy with severe abdominal pain had spontaneous splenic hemorrhage. Second case I've seen, but typical things, trauma, mononucleosis, occult tumor, and prior infarction, prior pancreatitis. Here's a spontaneous bleed. There was no known cause. Patient's spleen was, you know, top normal in size. You see on this non-contrast the high-density material around the spleen. You see it here as well. Now, if you, these patients are best evaluated with IV contrast to see if you can define a site of uh, bleeding. Now, there are several other areas in the spleen I want to discuss, but perhaps uh, we're running out of time, but eh, let me give it a shot. Let me just uh, mention about splenic abscess um, as a last thing. But you know, I'm going to come back. Let's do splenic abscess next time. All right. See you in a little bit. Bye-bye.